There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for that one more worker emergency. Oh, this is Katie. For 31 work. Watch him in the road. Send the police. Send the police. Hey guys, don't be a hero, mate. I said I'm not trying to be a hero, but the police are coming. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for a coffee table with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount. Of that. Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I've got a weird poet and furniture restorer named Peter Shoebridge. He lived a lovely life in Tasmania, but everything was not as it seemed. After the Port Arthur massacre, something snapped inside him and the consequences would be deadly. Like deadly as in the poetry was just that good or other kind of deadly? The other kind of deadly. Well, well, this is a murder podcast. I thought it might have turned into a poetry podcast, you know? (laughs) I mean, we've been going over a year. It's it's time we branched out into poetry, don't you think? Uh, No. Yeah, me either. How about you, Tara? What will you be covering? Uh, This week I looked into a narcissistic laser hair removalist with a coke problem who liked to impersonate a doctor. And I explored the fate of one of his clients who went missing after an appointment with him. Ooh. Yeah. It ended in bad poetry, i got to tell you. Where did she go? Nowhere good. Uh, Nowhere that she wanted to go. I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, you will. (laughs) You totally will. Hey, so we'd like to apologise for this episode being a day late, but Barney has had a raging case of man flu. Uh, We thought it might be fatal. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yeah, he just had to lie around going, ugh. But I'm feeling better now, so we're going to soldier through. Yeah, you still got a slight nasal twang. Yeah, well, can't help that really. No. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous, witty, sexy and incredibly charismatic patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details, bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right, let's get murdering. All right, let's get murdering. Maria Cruz was a clean living petite woman who wasn't even quite five feet tall. In 2003, she was 35 years old, but she could have easily passed for a woman in her mid-20s. Born in the Philippines to an engineer father, Maria was a very hardworking and studious person who'd come to America by herself in 1992 in search of a better life. Maria had earned herself a degree in communications from Manila's Mary Knoll College before moving to New York, where she received an MBA with honours from Fordham University. After graduating, she worked for Citibank as an analyst before taking a position as a senior credit analyst at Barclays Capital in 2001. She lived alone in a neat, well-kept apartment on the west side and was a devout Catholic who went to Mass every single day. Every day? Every day. I'm trying to think what I do every single day and I'm thinking drink coffee, sleep, shower. Yeah. Nothing like devout, really. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, good on her. Her life revolved around her church, her extended family and her job. 
She wasn't ever in trouble, said her uncle Jose Navarro, and didn't know people who were. Or at least she wasn't aware that she knew people who were. On Palm Sunday, you know what date that is? Uh, 14th of February. Ah, (laughs) and when's Valentine's Day? Uh, June 27th. Okay. On Palm Sunday, April 13th, 2003, a friend saw her at Mass at St Malachi's Church on West 49th Street. After the service, Maria dropped in at her office on Park Avenue to pick up some documents she needed for a meeting the next day. And after that, she vanished. Gone. Pretty much in the wind. Mm. Maria's boss, Hans Christensen. Ah, uh, the guy who wrote Little Mermaid. No, no. Um, no relation to the Danish fairy tale author, Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah. But I can see your confusion there. Yeah. I thought everyone named Hans was related, but I mm. was wrong. Um, so he was one of the first people to notice that she hadn't turned up for work. So he tried calling her apartment several times, as did some of her associates, but nobody answered. Her co-workers grew concerned as they knew it was unlike Maria to miss a day of work without getting in touch with the office. When she hadn't been heard from by Wednesday, another colleague checked her apartment and found three days of Wall Street journals outside her front door. Oh, that's not like Maria. That's not like Maria at all. No. I don't think she just went, ugh, Wall Street Journal, I'm just going to read celebrity gossip online. I'm done with this financier shit. That's not Maria. That is not Maria. Christensen called Maria's aunt, who was her emergency contact, and she had her sons check out Maria's apartment. They found no sign of her inside. On Friday morning, her family began calling hospitals in case she'd been in an accident. That night, with no sign of her, her uncle Jose went to the local precinct and filed a missing persons report. And how do you think that went? Well, I guess there'd be thousands of people going missing in New York every year, wouldn't yeah. there? Yeah. Well, this was in March, right? Um, but there'd been more than 18,400 people who'd been reported missing in New York City by that point in 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Most of them turned out to be runaways, though. So the police figured that Maria was just another one. Ah, going to California to be a star. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. So Maria... Feeling discouraged by the police's response, Maria's family began handing out flyers and phoning reporters in an effort to get more people looking for her. They even created a website called mariacruzmissing.com. A few months passed with no helpful information. Eventually, New York City detectives discovered that Maria had been undergoing treatment for a condition identified as Black Hairy Tongue Syndrome, which is a benign growth that can be a side effect of certain medications. It it sounds nasty, doesn't it? Sounds like something you get from bum tongue. It actually is. This what you've been suffering from? Just like a really extreme case of it? No, no. The Friday before Maria disappeared, she'd cancelled an appointment with a Manhattan laser specialist who was treating her. When detectives discovered a credit card purchase at Lowman's department store dated the Sunday she disappeared, they noticed that the store was a block from the specialist's office and wondered if she'd rescheduled her appointment. Ah. Good old-fashioned police work. Mm. The laser specialist Maria had been seeing was 44-year-old Dean Fiello, and he had form. Oh, really? Mm. Do tell. In 1998, he'd been convicted for possessing forged prescription pads that he'd stolen from a dermatologist. And in 2002, he offered to perform laser surgery on undercover investigators and was charged with practicing medicine without a license. So if the doctor walks like a duck and talks like a duck, he's a quack? He's a quack. Yeah, no. but I mean, let's think about it. If someone's wearing a white coat, you just think, doctor, right? Yeah, you do. Yeah, well, you'd be wrong too. Anyway, um, Fayello didn't receive any jail time for either of these crimes. They were like, ah, she'll be right, buddy. Slapping the wrist, eh? Yeah, you're on probation now. Just be good, eh? Be good, champ. When Maria came to him in April 2003, Fayello was still on probation. As a condition of his release, he had closed his Manhattan office and agreed not to treat more patients. But what Fayello said and what he did were often very different things, and he'd been secretly treating patients in a nearby apartment. Which sounds a little bit fishy, like, come up to this apartment, I'll give you some laser technology hair removal for your tongue. Well, quack's got to make a living. Whack. Yeah, and who knows? Um, I haven't been to a lot of laser specialists in my time. No? And by a lot, I mean I haven't been to any. You're not her suit? Um, her suit? No, actually. But uh, <laughs> it would kind of serve me right if my tongue did get hairy, so it could happen, and yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah. 
When she scheduled a laser surgery appointment with him for April 13th, Maria had no idea that Fayello had been charged with three felony counts of practicing medicine without a license or that she would be in any danger in his care. Mm. No, you wouldn't, would you? No, you just sort of assume that, well, they're practicing, they must be okay, or mm. they would have been shut down. Detective... Detective... Yeah, that was the real sentence, and that was the end of my story. Did you like it? I liked it. Excellent. Detectives contacted Fayello's attorney, but she said that she couldn't find him. Oh, he's not here. He's not in the cupboard. I don't know where he is. Must be somewhere else. It wasn't until December that investigators spoke with Fayello's long-suffering boyfriend, a 43-year-old designer named Greg Bark. Now, Bark didn't know where he was either, and he was super pissed at him. Fayello had up and left town without warning, owing him at least $85,000. That's a lot of money. That is a shit ton of money. Also, if you've been in a relationship with someone for several years, you generally let them know when you're going to up and leave town, huh? Yeah. Fayello had tricked hundreds of people into believing he was running an above-board operation. He had a glamorous receptionist with a French accent... Uh, a room full of the latest laser equipment and an internet page that falsely claimed he'd trained hundreds of doctors in the latest laser techniques. He should have taught a lying seminar. Probably could have made just as much money. That's right. He was also considered a bit of all right in the looks department and adept at manipulating all manner of people. He wore flame-retardant pants on his gym-honed legs so he could lie his ass off without them catching fire. Oh, that's handy. Yeah. (laughs) Where do I get me some of those? He told some patients that he was a dermatologist and said that he had a civil engineering degree, even though he'd never actually graduated from college. He always had a crisp white lab coat on, groomed and bathed, cologne, very professional, says Mark Ritchie, a hairdresser who'd known Fayello for nearly 20 years. But that was all a front. After five o'clock, it all changed. Yeah, the coat came off, the arseless chaps went on and the drugs came out. Fayello grew up in the middle-class suburb of Madison, New Jersey, where he was a keen skier, president of the National Honor Society, (laughs) and voted most likely to succeed in high school. Must have been a pretty slow year. Well, they never get those right, do they? They really don't get those right at all. I'm surprised they didn't vote me most likely to, to succeed, considering the life I've had. Anyway, he was close to his mother, but his parents' divorce, combined with his coming out as gay, led to an estrangement from his father. Fayello enrolled at a polytechnic institute in upstate New York with the intention of becoming an engineer, but dropped out after five semesters. Ah, so maybe he's working off the theory that if you plan to do something at some point, you can say that you've already done it. It sounds like he just wanted to learn just enough. To be able to lie. So he could lie, so he could fake it. Maybe. I'm not sure if he meant to drop out or not, or if he was just like, you know what, I could get the degree, or I could just pretend to have it and save myself years of hard work and lots of money. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Actually, why did I get a degree in hindsight? Mm. After this, he lived with his mum, working construction and frequenting Manhattan's gay nightclubs where his dance card was very full indeed. Wow. Handsome fucker, eh? Oh, apparently he was quite charming. He could charm the fire retardant pants off anyone. The first time ex-boyfriend Christopher Buxek saw Fayello, he knew he had to have him. What was his name? Christopher Buxek. Oh, right. I thought you said something else. What did you think I said? I thought you said butt sex. Christopher butt sex. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. The trouble we'd get into. Um, So it was 1982 and they were both in their early 20s. I was one of a long line of people who were obsessed with Dean, who was someone unobtainable that I wanted very badly, says Buck Zek, a Virginia communications consultant. Every time I say it, you're thinking butt sex, though, aren't you? No, I'm not. Yeah. Are you thinking bum tongue? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, you had that look. If you break down everything that's attractive about Dean, there's a lot of things. Good looking, very charismatic, very charming, great voiced, honestly great in bed. But all those things don't add up to the power he has over people. The real thing that drew people to Dean was that soft-spoken manner. He knew what to say and what not to say. You know, he was an expert at creating infatuation. For years, he just kept circling around in my bloodstream, like a virus. Hey, baby, you got some unwanted hair. You're going to go to the beach this summer. I could remove it for you. (laughs) Like a virus. (laughs) I like the shade. 
Faiello bounced from man to man and job to job throughout the 1980s. During this time, he managed to save up enough money from his construction work to buy a fancy three-story house on Elwood Avenue in Newark, which is a respectable neighbourhood with many historic homes. Or at least it was then. I don't know what it is now. A gay construction worker. I know. <laughs> just, the, just one of the village people here. Wow. Anyway, in the late 80s, while doing construction work on a spa called The Beach, Faiello met the owner, Michael Hart, and the two started seeing each other. Faiello had been a heavy drinker and user of cocaine and multitudes of other party drugs. It was Hart who poured all his bottles of alcohol down the drain, flushed his drug stash down the toilet, no, and pushed him into rehab. Yeah. <laughs> Great boyfriend. Well, you know, it was probably what he needed. Yeah. Faiello and Hart split their time between a Manhattan apartment and Faiello's house. For fun, they went to Broadway shows and fine dining restaurants. Hart convinced Faiello he could make more money working at his spa than renovating houses. So Faiello quit construction and went to work as a body waxer at the beach. Not the beach, like on the sand, like the beach, the clinic. The Yeah, right, the spa. Yeah. The spa. Yeah, I got that. Good. Because, like, I guess people might be at the actual beach and realising they need to be waxed, but it, it'd be a shit fight getting the wax out, you know. Oh, man, by the cool. time you've got to the beach, you know, that, that the opportunity has passed. Yeah, well, I was really? thinking, though, like, maybe if you could have, a, like, a mobile beach waxing thing, people would be into it. Oh. oh, my God, I forgot to do my bikini line. Oh, but wait, there's a mobile waxing cart. Cool. See? I think I've come up with the, the way we're going to make millions, Barney. It yeah. certainly isn't fucking podcasting, is it? No. <laughs> All right. Should we call our pube removal service Bloody Murder as well? Well, yeah, <laughs> let's get some money coming in under the Bloody Murder name sometimes. Well, well, it's a branding thing, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. I feel like that might put people off. Really? Being waxed by us. <laughs> Bloody Murder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about uh. that. During the early 1990s, with the emergence of handheld lasers that could be used to remove body hair, Faiello took some courses and became a laser hair removal technician. Still not a doctor, though, is he? Still not a doctor. No, not a doctor. Faiello practiced laser hair removal techniques on his own body, eventually eliminating all of his body hair from every area except his lower left leg, which he kept hairy to experiment on. Well, why not? Yeah. yeah. Well, I figure, like, if he was experimenting on it and what he was doing worked, he'd kind of get rid of that yeah. hair in a hurry, but apparently not. Failed experiments only for the, uh, right. the lower left leg. Hey, baby, I can write your name on my hairy left leg. <laughs> you probably could, actually. Um, so his friends found this a little unnerving. His look got a little creepier as time went on, remembers Chris Buckzek. Maybe you can just call him by his first name now. Well, that's the last. Oh, it's like the third time. I don't know. I think, I think, I'm, in it. I think I'm in it to win it yeah, now. Yeah, well, you're too deep into the butt sex to, 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 to pull out now, are you? I can't stop now. It's, it's in my blood like a virus. His friends found this a little unnerving. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm unnerved also His look got a little creepier as time went on Remembers Chris Buckzek He just looked plucked to me wow, Like a chicken Like a chicken Hey <laughs> Plucked for the very first time In the early 1990s Michael Hart became sick with AIDS And by the time he died in November 1995 Faiello had already moved on to a new man Mm, that's oh. cold. Yeah, he was probably out water, water skiing with him, with his one hairy leg. Uh, this was a decision that infuriated many of Hart's friends. When Michael lay dying down in Florida, Dean was already running around on him. He doesn't care about anyone, said a friend of Hart's. Mm. Except himself, addendum. Hart's death removed all policing of Faiello's drug use, and he went straight back to his party boy ways. Dean was always into drugs, said Buckzek. <laughs> what we did were party drugs, stuff you did when you were going out dancing, ecstasy. But Dean did harder drugs than I did, like cocaine. I know he had problems with coke and alcohol. It was his work with lasers that led Faiello to his true drug of choice, Stadol NS, an opiate nasal spray that's effects are described as being very calming and very addictive. Faiello had actual real doctors prescribe Stadol as a painkiller for his patients, but he also made sure he had plenty available for himself. Designer Greg Bark had seen Faiello in the gay clubs for years and secretly wanted him bad. 
A mutual friend introduced them at a Chelsea bar called G. He was everything I wanted. Everything, Bark sighed. I mean, he was the guy for me. So many people were obsessed with Dean. He had a way of leaving you wanting more. They began dating, um, you know, talking on the phone every night, going to movies and the theatre, and Fiello usually paid by pulling out like a huge wad of notes that he kept in his pocket. Everyone loves a wad. Everyone loves a wad of money. Buck was super impressed. By then, Fiello had opened his own laser business called Skinovations in a suite of offices in a fancy Upper East Side medical building. At first, Bark didn't know how heavily Fayello was into drugs. At Bark's apartment, where he began staying during the week, Fayello slept late most days, prompting Bark to affectionately call him a vampire. He opened the office around noon, worked till eight or nine, then lifted weights at the gym and brought home dinner. But suddenly in October 1998, poof, he disappeared. Bark heard nothing from him for three whole days. Then he got the call. Fiello had been arrested for forging prescriptions. He was ordered to go into rehab. Bach, still besotted by him, stood by his man. For a short time after he got out, Fiello seemed committed to his sobriety. But his legal troubles and rehab, having taken him away from the office, caused financial problems. He had expensive leases on his laser equipment and expensive tastes. And once he returned to work, he had to work really long hours and weekends and things to try and regain his financial footing. That began a pattern, said Bark. He'd work really hard for a time, but then when things were going well, he sabotages everything. The drugs start up again, the problems start up again. He was getting nuttier and nuttier, Bark recalled, staying up all night reading medical websites. Fiello also had drastic mood swings. For a while, I actually thought he had multiple personalities. You know, who am I talking to? It was like someone else was in his body. At the Newark house, Bark opened a linen closet and found a dish with a straw inside, which was a possible sign that Fiello was using coke again. I tried to get him to talk about what he was feeling, but he said it's just work. I tell you, I should have gotten the Boyfriend of the Year award for five years straight. What is the Boyfriend of the Year award? Some kind of trophy, I, I would imagine. It's a imagine. trophy. There's a medal. You get to stand on a podium and they play like your own personal anthem to you. Oh. Bunny is great. Bunny is great. I guess oh, you've never I, heard it. No. I've never, <laughs> never even been in the top ten. Oh. Although he wasn't a doctor by a long stretch, Fiello was always keen to big note himself and often referred to himself as one. The doctor will see you now. By the summer of 2002, three separate undercover investigations of Fiello's practice were underway. Two journalists pretended to be patients and went on undercover visits to Fiello. He told them both he was a doctor and volunteered to perform minor cosmetic surgeries, procedures that New York law did not permit him to do as only an actual doctor can perform surgery. Yes. Not a fake fuck doctor. Not a quack. Quack. So the charges of practicing medicine without a license, can you guess what the uh, possible prison sentence was? House arrest and immediate cessation of chocolate rations. You know what? That's pretty close. Um, the uh, possible sentence was up to four years. That seems a little light, doesn't it? For pretending to be a doctor. Yeah, and like doing lives. surgery on people. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. After the incriminating reports were screened and published, Fiello was charged. Boyfriend of the Year Bark paid a $5,000 bond and Fiello was released that afternoon. Bing! The morning after his release, Fiello went into his office. I thought he was going to start packing, Bark says, but it turns out he was going there to give someone a treatment. Wow. Never yeah. learns. No. Never learns. After Bark and friends protested, Fiello reluctantly agreed to stop. His decision, however, meant he would have no income, which meant big financial problems. Also, what he says and what he does, generally different things. Different. Fiello's lawyer managed to organise a very sweet plea bargain with the state prosecutors. In return for their reducing his prison sentence to six months, Fiello agreed to help the Attorney General's office investigate at least two Manhattan doctors suspected of medical insurance fraud, stemming from the doctor's unauthorised writing of prescriptions for Fiello himself. So he's gone dog on doctors that were actually giving him shit. Yeah, like things people were like, you know, helping him out for whatever reason, and now he's going to dog them. Mm. Well, that seems a bit shit. Scruples? He doesn't have any. No, I don't think he knows how to spell the word. 
In the following weeks, Faello fell into a bit of a state of depression. Uh, he stayed in bed most of the time. He stopped going to the gym and started porking up. He showered and shaved infrequently. It was a far cry from the former glory of his well-dressed, six-pack-wielding gym queen days. His lower left leg became ridiculously hairy and sad. (laughs) (laughs) One day that Faiello did manage to drag himself out of bed and leave the house was Sunday, April 13th, the day Maria Cruz went missing. Looking back on that day, Bach didn't recall anything unusual about it. It's unclear whether Faello's decision to leave the country came out of fear as a recent arrest for cocaine possession might jeopardise his sweet-ass plea bargain agreement, or because he'd caught wind that New York detectives were asking his acquaintances about Maria Cruz. Either way, he caught a flight to Costa Rica on September 19th. When he found out Faello was being sought for questioning in the disappearance of one of his patients, Bach remembered that someone had told him the previous spring of a conversation with Faello, who had said he rushed a patient to the hospital after she suffered convulsions following the administering of a local anaesthetic. Maria Cruz had gone into convulsions after Faello injected lidocaine into her tongue. In a panic, he'd called an acquaintance who was a real physician and was told to rush Maria to an emergency room. Instead of seeking immediate medical aid, Faiolo put Maria's body in a large suitcase and took it to his place, then buried her under a concrete slab in his garage. No. I'm pretty sure that's not what his doctor acquaintance said to him. Like, take it to emergency or put her in a suitcase and hide it. Mm, No. 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 Maybe a real doctor would have gone, suitcase? Well, that's not going to help her. No, it's not. Maybe hospital? Hospital. Yeah. I guess they teach that at doctor school, right? Yeah. He missed that class. Well, he missed all of them. He wasn't even enrolled. Searching his memory for any indication Faiello might have hidden a body, Bach thought of a strange concrete slab that he'd poured in the garage of the sprawling white house he'd recently sold in Newark. It was there, beneath the cement Faiello had laid in the storage room at the back of the garage, that on February 18, 2004, police found Maria Cruz's decomposing body stuffed in a suitcase wrapped with garbage bags. Yeah. Yep. Just went went to a laser specialist, ended up in a suitcase under cement. An arrest warrant was issued, but Dean Faiello was long gone. Even before finding Maria's body, police had suspected Faiello was in Costa Rica. He'd sent emails to several friends, which were easily traced to the Costa Rican capital of San Jose. He knew the way to San Jose. Investigators suspect Maria Cruz died after suffering an allergic reaction to the lidocaine, though an autopsy failed to determine the exact cause of death. Why Faiello didn't rush her to a hospital may never be known. He may have been high, or he might have been freaked out that the police would have discovered he was working. Either way, it was a low dick move. Also, if they discovered he's working, what, he was maybe going to get four years, like... I just, it doesn't, the the checks and balances don't work, but I guess you have to be a bit of a sociopath for it to uh, add up, huh? And a narcissist. Maybe he's just plain greedy. Maybe he's just a cunt. (laughs) Nailed it. He entered Costa Rica with a three-month visa. There he enjoyed his self-imposed exile at various luxury hotels and apartments. After Cruz's body was recovered, detectives traced Faiello using credit card records um, to where he was renting a $500 a night villa. Oh, doesn't that sound delightful? He'd been hanging around the pool, downing beers and hitting on bartenders for several days. Hey, baby, I'll have a beer and your phone number. (laughs) Hey, baby, I'll have a beer and why don't you get yourself one too? (laughs) Hey, baby, see all that hair on my lower left leg? It could be yours. He was arrested, beer in hand, on February 26, 2004, at the resort swimming pool. Hold my beer. Hold my beer. Faiello, who was 46 at the time, was initially charged with murder in the death of Maria Cruz, but his lawyer managed to cut a deal with prosecutors, pleading guilty in Manhattan Supreme Court to first-degree assault in exchange for a 20-year prison sentence. Um, anyone with like some severe legal trouble needs to find out who Dean Faiello's lawyer was because they sound fucking good, don't it's they? It's still 20 years. Yeah, but he could have got so much worse, particularly since he like he buried her in his garage. He ran off to bloody San Jose. But you've got to think about this legally. He, it, They can't prove that he had intent to kill her. It's still an accident. Yeah, I know. 
On February 23rd, Cruz's family gathered to say goodbye to her at the Church of Our Lady of Pompeii in New York City. Her remains were cremated and later buried in Manila. She came here young and healthy, her mother Irina said. Now we take her home as ash. Oh, wow. What a quote. Yeah. I, oh, I Maria. Know. I know. Well, like, then, such an innocuous procedure is what she yeah. thought she was having. And what a brave woman, too, to leave her country and come to America and... I know, and, and she, she was, was only um, like um, mm. in her early twenties when she yeah. came to America as well, and and studying like in America that costs a lot of money, so she's probably working the whole time as well. Yeah. So yeah, um, another like great sounding person getting snuffed out by like a fucking a dirtbag, low low class dirtbag. Mm. Yep. You, if that's the stories you like, you've come to the right place. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You certainly have. So, Barney, I believe it's your turn. But before you start, I have a quick poem for you. Really? Uh-huh. Roses are red, violets are blue. I get a feeling this is not going to end well. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah? Appropriate? Wow. That's beautiful. Mm, I missed my calling. I'm a doctor and a poet. Doctor poet, they call me. In 1996, 35 people were murdered when crazed gunman Martin Bryant ran amok in the historic site of Port Arthur. This story is set just 14 months later and also in the state of Tasmania. Got that? I got it. I got it hard. Just north of Hobart, 52-year-old Peter Shoebridge was a quite wealthy man, a published poet who restored antiques and lived a genteel life on an idyllic country estate. Well, that sounds delightful. Now, let's just hark back a second. He's a wealthy poet? Can that happen in this country? Because I, I felt as though it couldn't. I will explain it. Okay, <laughs> please explain. Old, old money, basically. Oh, yeah. right, okay. Yeah. Peter was a son of a wealthy farming family that traced its origins back to the foundation of Tasmania. He was educated at the private Hutchins School at Sandy Bay, Hobart. Over the years, he'd worked as a shearer and jackaroo and delivered beer. Ah, oh, sweet. Mm. Peter travelled extensively and worked in England, Scotland, Denmark and the US... He was a published poet known locally as Poet Pete. <laughs> Do you think there was just the one Poet Pete in Tasmania or were there a few? Well, there might have been a few. Yeah, there's probably a few. Peter dedicated his 1992 book of poetry, A Bush Wedding, to my ever-caring and supportive wife and four beautiful daughters who provide all the beauty a human being could ever wish to have. Well, that's lovely. Isn't it? In describing himself, Peter wrote, Being a perfectionist, I want to breed the beef, butcher the beef, and eat the beef, but there are too many cows. Oh, well, being a perfectionist, I find that really freaking obscure. That really doesn't make a lot of sense, it does it? It doesn't, But you said he was a jackaroo, so he's just trying to combine all of his skills, and then he gave someone a beer. Yeah, well, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't us. According to some locals, he was a known nutter. They described his poetry as a bit shite. <laughs> oh. A Hobart bookshop once took five copies on consignment and never sold one. He ended up having to take them back. Ooh, dusty old poetry books. Mm. Peter had divorced from his wife, Wendy, two years earlier and shared the custody of his four daughters, Rebecca, 18, Anna, 14, Sarah, 12, and Georgina, 9. Okay. Wendy had dropped the four girls off at their father's home on June 28, 1997 and found her former husband normal and ordinary. Well, that, that doesn't sound likely, does it? Probably why she divorced him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the words I would have used. But Peter wasn't normal uh, or ordinary. He never had been. He wore his eccentricity on his shoulders like a cape. Everyone could see that he liked to fly his freak flag. It set him apart and won him recognition at the little Sunday markets in the Tasmanian town of Richmond. There he would spout his corny and incomprehensible poetry <laughs> at tourists. <laughs> it put him on morning television and got him named the Bush Poet. Mm. So, Poet Pete... The Bush Poet. Graduated to... To morning television. To morning television. Yeah. The Bush Poet. He also worked painstakingly at furniture restoration and was well respected for his craftsmanship. Marjan Goosen, 
An art gallery owner in Richmond who organised the Sunday markets at which he read his poetry said, He was a perfectionist with the eye for balance and proportion. The things he made his house had classical proportions. Of course, his view of perfection was not always everybody else's. He was making these huge baronial chairs, and I thought, God, Peter, who was going to buy these things? <laughs> so hang on. He made gigantic chairs with great craftsmanship and yes. sold them at the markets while spouting poetry at tourists. Yeah, you got it. He sounds like an energetic guy. He does. Dr. Michael Shoebridge. A real doctor? Apparently. Okay. Who collaborated with him for a time on a family history found Peter hard to define. I met his wife, Wendy, and their four children. He was a nice gentleman, a little bit eccentric, but there was an unusual intensity in his manner, a quirky look, an exuberance in his performances, and an insensitivity to when people had had enough of his poems. <laughs> Once you got him started... There was no off button. That's right. Ron Christie, host of the morning television program Tasmania Today, Yay. said... What we liked about him at the time was the fact that he had flair and a bit of presentation. He enjoyed it. Whether the content was understandable or not, it did not matter. He came across as if he was entertaining, and that's what morning television is all about. What the morning television, it's the approximation of entertainment, isn't it? It really is. Yes, right. It really is. Peter loved being on the telly, but he was often dissatisfied with his readings, telling Christy he could do better and, and he demanded retakes while the sound and camera crew shook their heads and asked, what the hell was that all about? Well, I don't fucking know. He was dropped after a couple of seasons, but unfortunately he did not drop his poetry. <laughs> oh, harsh. One Christmas he phoned a family member to read her a new poem. I thought it would never fucking end, <laughs> she confessed. One relative described Peter. I've always found him very strange. People would say he was uh, eccentric, you know, still waters run deep, that sort of thing. You know when you meet people and you sense things are quite odd? I saw a bit of him, but I tended to avoid him because I was never at ease. Hmm. But along with the strangeness, most people described the friendly, easygoing man always willing to help out if he could. He would mend furniture for relatives and slaughter and dress a sheep for a neighbour. Well, that's mighty neighbourly. So what, he'd kill it and then put a dress on put, it? Yeah, put a little hat, give it a cane, maybe some nice shoes, some accessories. Well, we know what dressing a lamb means. It means cutting Dre it into the steaks. dressing it like Bo Peep. No. It does It means not. cutting it into lamb chops and stuff, Tara. Well, okay. You that, grow up in, in the country. You yeah, know these things, but I you? didn't kill anything on purpose. Only with a plastic bucket. Yes, you did kill a cow by, with a plastic bucket once, Yes, because it ate my plastic spade and I didn't mean to have it die. What did it eat the spade or the bucket? It was the spade. Oh, it wasn't the bucket. I, I don't think it ate the bucket. <laughs> I think it kicked the bucket when it ate the spade. It wanted to eat the bucket, but the spade finished it off. Yeah, pretty much. That farmer was so mad at me. A lifetime friend said he seemed to have retained those old country values of looking out for others, even though he had worked for many years in the city. Well, you can take a boy out of the country. But one Sunday morning, in the bottom of Australia, on the island of Tasmania, Peter would turn into a man that media would later describe as the Tasmanian devil. Hmm. We should stop this story right here while it's still happy. Yeah, no. We have to keep going. Ah. This is a murder podcast. <laughs> Nine years before... Peter had built a sprawling sandstone country homestead. It sits on a hilltop with a confidence of a castle. Oh, well, the confidence of a castle. It is called Southernfield. The interior is marked by impeccable blackwood finishings. His family, the Shoebridges, are one of Tasmania's oldest families, traceable to a free settler, the hops farmer, William Shoebridge, who arrived in 1822. Oh, that's pretty Apparently early. Ebenezer Shoebridge is quite famous there too. Ebenezer, that's a name that needs to come back. I like oh, it. Oh, yeah, it's a great name, mm. isn't it? It's a good name for a cat. Yeah, or a, a cockatoo. Hmm, yeah. As a child, Peter Shoebridge's family acquired a property called Cleveland, surrounded by a native forest and nestled among hills 60 miles upriver from Hobart. It was a tranquil setting for Peter and his twin, John, who were born in December 1944. His brother John was born a little sooner and is said in the family that Peter missed out on inheriting the property because of this. Hang on, so his twin brother got the property and he was born minutes later and he didn't get it. Yeah, firstborn. But that's so ridiculous. The spoils belong to the firstborn. But they're twins. Was, he, I wonder if his twin was as eccentric and poetic as he was. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. Peter did not miss out completely. His father gave him a shitload of cash instead. 
but many think he still had a chip on his shoulder. About not get, not fighting his way out of the womb first. Yeah. Yeah, God damn, fetus me. You didn't quite make it. Some think this is why he built his castle in the country. Peter finished building it shortly before Georgina was born, and Georgina was about four when her parents uh, separated. Okay, and then she was nine at the beginning of the story? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll cut that bit out, I guess. Well, I think you should, because it's not fucking scintillating, is it? It doesn't add to the conversation. Can you add to the conversation instead of taking away from it? No, no, I believe I'm a conversation burglar. (laughs) You're a burglar, but burglar for conversation. Wow. Peter had. Peter had. Peter, 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 Peter. A peckled peck of pickled poetry. (laughs) (laughs) There you go again. <laughs> Robbing the conversation. Robbing the conversation of any meaning or hope. Peter had a persistent back injury, uh, which he suffered while working on the family farm as a young man. Wait, it, because he was picking a peck of people poetry? Yes, it caused him severe and chronic pain. He'd been told by his GP about 12 months before that this degenerative arthritis, mainly in his lumbar spine, could mean within several years he may have difficulty in walking. Oh, no. Peter and Wendy lived apart but were not estranged. The girls, Rebecca, Anna, Sarah and Georgina, lived with their mother in Inahobar, but on weekends they stayed with their father. He was a regular visitor at school events at St Michael's, which the three older girls attended. He was seen at regattas at parent-teacher nights. He and Wendy always appeared at ease with each other. At school, the girls would talk of going to stay with their father and always appeared to look forward to their weekends with him. Okay, even the 18-year-old, you'd think she might be like, you know, rebelling. Nah, they're into yeah, it. cool. Yeah. They were all delightful girls. We were so proud of them, said St. Michael's principal, Dan McNeil. Rebecca was captain of boats and a keen horse rider. Anna was academic, a netballer and a tennis player. And Sarah was loved and admired for she was so creative and caring. At Albira Street Primary School, Georgina was a little blonde girl bursting with life. She was a beautiful child who just really enjoyed life, said one of her teachers, Penny Gibson. I never heard a crossword from her, and when you're with kids a lot, that means something. Wendy had no concerns about the girls staying with Peter. The rest of the time, he appeared to live quietly and alone. He had no history of violence or of mental illness. She was happy to allow him access, and their separation appeared untroubled. So you know this is not going to go well. No, look, I've known it wasn't going to go well since before it started. At about 6.45am on June 26, 1997, the Tasmanian Emergency Services triple O number received a call telling them of a murder-suicide at the Southern Field property. Then the caller hung up. When the police arrived, they found Peter Shoebridge lying face-up in front of a shed, a twenty-two rifle at his feet. His right hand was missing. What? A hand lay on the chopping block nearby, and next to it was a blood-stained axe. Oh! He cut off his own hand? Yeah, it appears that way. In the shed was a truck with bloodstains on the driver's side, on the steering wheel and the seat. The telephone in the shed was bloodstained, but only on the zero button. Because they dialed triple zero. Inside the house, they found his daughters. Each of the girls was dead, their throats slashed with what police said were deep, vicious cuts. There were four bedrooms along one wing of the house. Anna and Sarah were together in one, and police believe they died first. Then Rebecca was killed and finally Georgina, who lay alone in an end bedroom. It appeared Peter had made his way along the wing, killing each of his girls as he came to them. There had been a struggle in Rebecca's room. And is Rebecca the oldest? So she's 18. Yeah, she's 18. As they found, she had slash marks across both hands. So oh, well, I mean, wounds. I'm guessing that she woke up to this. It would have, it, There would have been no way for her to process what was going on. It would have just seemed like the... the most terrifying and unlikely thing. Yeah. Peter's own bed appeared unused, so he'd been up all night, yeah. I guess. Yeah, sharpening uh, his knives. Yeah. While police were still taking in the scene, they had a call from the mail exchange alerting them to 15 bloodstained letters found in a bag and stamped Shoebridge on the back. They would later find a bloodstained mailbox in Cambridge almost six kilometres away, where Peter had driven after killing the girls. Other letters were found neatly stacked on the kitchen table, also stained by the girl's blood. After mailing the letters, Peter had returned home, rang the emergency number and had hacked off his hand, his right hand. This had taken several blows of the axe. 
He then shot himself in the head with his left hand. Among the letters were some to his nephews that gave no hint of what he was about to do, but offered advice for the future. Things along the lines of, if you get married, do the right thing. Marriage is for life. Hang on, do the right thing like what, like he's done. <laughs> yeah, it's confusing. Do, do what I say, not what I do. Yeah. One was addressed to Wendy and the world. It read in part, Alas, I stuffed up my priorities and stopped giving to my family in the balanced way all good parents should. I have let you and our girls down when you needed me most, Wendy. The fault lies deep within me. Because of the deep, very deep graphic images from the past, present, future, I did not want our girls to face the hardships, rigours, trickery, risks, uncertainties, fears, anxieties of wrong choices, legacies, left-behind responsibilities, problems, pressures. I urge every young person to think deeply before bringing children into this world of such responsibilities, commitment and pressure. Without struggle, our children died. I made sure of that. Hang on, but there were defensive wounds on his oldest daughter's hands, right? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a struggle to me. Yeah, it really does. The letters were undated, but police believe they were written before Wendy dropped off the girls at the house on Saturday oh, afternoon. So he wasn't expecting a struggle. Police said more than likely he has written them when he was at the house on his own. Right, because of the length of That's the- right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and it'd be pretty hard to do it with a hand bleeding. Well, I mean, you know, they would know if that was the case because he would have just like bled everywhere all over his lovely stationary set that probably had pictures of Care Bears and stuff on it. The then Hobart coroner, Ian Masterson, found the long and detailed letters spoke of his concern for the world and made mention of his animals and how they should be cared for after he was gone. That Peter Shoebridge has some concerns about his own future is not an issue, but his young daughters had everything to live for, Mr Marsden said in his findings. There is an indication Peter's mental state worsened considerably after the Port Arthur atrocity, which happened the year before. Some say Peter was depressed by the separation from his wife and his recent sacking from his job as a manager of a vineyard. Among the letters on the table were ones addressed to the girls and included instructions on life, which suggested to the coroner the killings weren't planned. Whether taking their lives was seen as a way of protecting them from the world as a result of some depression or delusion will remain speculation. There were theories in the community he may have cut off his hand as some sort of self-inflicted punishment for the brutal deaths of his daughter. Do you know if he's right-handed or left-handed? I think he would have been left-handed. It doesn't mention it anywhere. Uh, yeah, I guess um, it would have made it incredibly hard to hack off the hand that you use the most. Yeah. Unless, you know, he's ambidextrous with an axe. Yeah, maybe. Mr Masterson, the coroner, thought that this was unlikely, though. Rather, it must be remembered he came from farming stock, having worked on the family property until only a couple of years before his marriage. People on the land know that for a bullet to kill instantly, it must be accurate. To cut an animal in such a way that it will quickly bleed to death will ensure a rapid demise. I am of the opinion that the severing of the hand was no more than insurance in case the bullet failed to perform its intention. That's a sound theory, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Although, would he also know that, is it the femoral artery, the one that runs down like in, in, the, your, in your thigh? Yeah. Give, give that a bit of a nick. You'll be gone in a, a minute. Yeah, that's right. So that would be like more of an insurance, but maybe, well, he does like, he likes being dramatic. I think we know that. Mm. Maybe there's some symbolism of this missing right hand. They're whispering his name through this disappearing land. Dozens of shitty poems in his red, red right, right hand. Ah, oh, Nick Cave knew. Uh, Nick Cave always knows. Forensic psychologist Ian Joblin said the appearance of accepting a separation might only mask a deep brooding. And this is a quote from his report. Mm -hmm. It's often not the case that a male in a breakup is given the credit of being an emotional being. For a whole lot of reasons, he is not going to show it, and there may be feelings of shame, feelings of guilt. It may remain latent until some catalyst brings it up, like the Port, the Arthur, Port Arthur, Arthur Massacre. Massacre. Dr Joblin also said access to children often heightened the sense of loss. This man was obviously very seriously disturbed, and the method of the killing, therein lies the secret of how disturbed he was. Murder-suicide is not uncommon. The method of killing these girls is rare. At a point of utter despair, he had imposed upon the girls his feelings that there was nothing of value left in this world. Journalist Alan Winnett covered the case and said that the fact that it came so soon after Port Arthur made it even more devastating. I just remember this feeling of here we go again. 
The horror of what had happened became even clearer when she saw Peter Shoebridge's severed hand still lying on the chopping block. There were all these police standing around outside in the crime scene tape there, and you could actually see his hand. Poor old Tasmania. We haven't recovered from Port Arthur. We've got a long, long way to go from that. And now we've got this. We've lost these four beautiful girls. These girls were very well known and respected and loved in their communities, and the ripple effect is horrendous. In the days that followed, friends of the girls wept and hugged each other on their way to school. Headmaster Dan McNeil said, We're all in a state of shock. We were all so proud of these children. Nine-year-old Georgina Shoebridge's school friends covered her vacant desk with flowers. Known to her buddies as Gina, she was described as bright, bubbly and bouncy. She, she was always in the schoolyard wearing her black velvet hat. Children added more items to Gina's desk, a drawing, a poem about her and some photos. The children of Year 4 at Albira Street Primary School had created their own little memorial for sweet Gina. So Tara, yeah? try to imagine anything sadder than a child's coffin. Time's out by four. Mm. The grief, the loss of her daughters and thinking about the bleak future that lay before her, a future without watching her four girls grow, must have been unbearable for her mother, Wendy. I just don't know how anyone would handle that. Her ex-husband, Peter Shoebridge, apparently loved his children very much. He said that they were his four beautiful daughters who provide all the beauty a human being could ever wish to have. He worshipped the ground they walked on. Then in a haze of depression and mental illness... He swept away their lives. Anna, Sarah, Rebecca and Georgina were so rich with promise. So in the quiet pre-dawn hours, Peter Shoebridge slit the throats of his four daughters and left each of them to die gurgling in a pool of their own blood. Then he chopped off his own hand with an axe and blew his brains out. It just does fucking not make sense. No. um, It makes me wonder if he's trying to punish his ex-wife as well by killing the girls. I mean, who knows what he's even aware of in terms of his actions, but <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know how to end this one. I've got, um, I've got a quote from Matthew 5.30 here. Mm-hmm. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. It's better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body cast into hell. Yeah, well, maybe if he'd cut his hand off first and then not killed everyone, that would work. Yeah. But it's not what happened. Yeah, I think with murder-suicides, I think you should start with yourself. Start with the suicide start and with the then suicide. do the murder later. Do the murder later. I've always agreed with this theory as well. I mean, ideally, um, just seek some help if that's how you're feeling. But if you're going to go through with it, start with the suicide. The end. Yeah. I like what the um, that psychologist said about uh, men not confronting their depression too. Yeah, you look, know, I'm sure not that's admitting a thing. to it and and um, well, depression's huge in this mm. country for for young men. I believe they they well, young men. He's an older guy, but uh, men have a higher suicide rate than women in especially, Australia, I believe, especially in rural areas because yes. they're expected to be strong and and not complain about that kind of thing. Yeah, and they have less access to um, assistance as well. Although now with, you know, technology and phone lines and internet, that's improving. Yeah. Man, that's that's like four dick punches, dude. Yeah, I know. What's better than one dick punch? Four dick punches. Yeah, I had one dead little girl last week. Now I've got four. Is it going to be 16 next week? I guess. That's something to look forward to. I, I hope not. No, please, because then it would be like 64 the week after and I just don't even know how you'd get through that. It's too much math, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, yeah, because I'm a girl and we can't do it. I guess we should have an Aussie as. I hope you got a good one. Yeah, well, I certainly certainly have one. (laughs) Tara, what is Aussie as? Funny, I figured like you would know by now, but okay, I can tell you. Uh, They're tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Tell me one now. Yeah, I think you might need to hear four now. Okay, so an Australian couple has accused their nemesis and neighbour from across the road of harnessing the sun's power in an evil plot to make their lives hell. Is it starting out pretty well? Well, I like this. Yeah, (laughs) my God. 
Kate and Stephen of Barber Street, Berkeley, south of Sydney, say that Nathan, the man who lives across the street, has set up a dazzling array of nine mirrors designed to redirect the relentless afternoon sunlight through their living room windows and into their eyes. Oh, wow, that's diabolical. Oh, it really is. He's like Dr. Evil over there. Again, not a real doctor. I don't want you to die, Bond. I just want your eyes to hurt. Yes. <laughs> it's like the Star Wars movie. It's a bleeding death ray, Kate said angrily. The police have basically just said keep your blinds closed and keep the kids out the back. Kate and Stephen also claim Nathan has set up cameras and floodlights aimed at their house in an escalating campaign of neighbourhood hostility. According to Kate, the effects of the westerly appointed mirrors of mass destruction are so intense that at about 4.30pm she suffers from squinting and blindness. The and same thing happened to Renee Zellweger. Yeah, yeah, it was the mirrors what done it. Uh, she says that she's unable to watch television without closing her blinds, which is a bummer because 4.30pm is when all the good shows are on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, it's a wonder the TV isn't burnt out, she said. I'm at my wit's end. Nathan claims he erected the mirrors and cameras to protect his own place, responding to the allegations from the neighbours with a gruff, They're idiots. Both sets of neighbours insist the other party has keyed their cars as part of the epic battle, and Stephen said the words cunt face, which recently appeared on his driver's side door, are part of the never-ending antagonistic standoff. So hang on, someone's written cunt face. I believe they've keyed cunt face into the side of his car. <laughs> Well, I want to see what this guy looks like now. I want to see if it's true. You want to know if he has a cunt face? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, man. Oh, the comments on this episode are being written as we speak. Tyrus was too much. Not enough. Yeah, yeah. well, that happens to me as well. I'm so confused. <laughs> I really don't know how much to swear anymore. Anyway, Kate and Stephen have built a makeshift timber force field to repel the mirrored sunlight and put up floodlights from their front porch to approximate the powers of the sun at night time. So what, they put up some a, another fence or something to block the sunlight? Yeah, and then they've got like um, floodlights over the top of that to like try and make um, Nathan a bit squinty also. You know what they should stick on that, that bit of wood that they've stuck up? Mirrors. Mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> a doy. You'd think so. Uh -huh. um, so who will win this suburban New South Wales neighbourhood Thunderdome? And is the sun angry for getting dragged into all of this fuckery? Yeah. Those are my questions. Mm, I just wanted to make the flowers grow. I, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with this. No, I don't want anything to do with this either. I just want to be able to watch 4.30pm television in peace without squinting or pulling yeah, the blinds. It is when all the good stuff's on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> all the good shows. <laughs> well, that was pretty good. That uh, That's really cheered me up, actually. Oh, gosh. I'm glad. I'm not, I'm not sure it's done the trick for me. <laughs> So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Uh, buy some burger rings or something. There's, there's also a link to our merch store. I've been um, Snotty Barney Black. <laughs> and I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you're game. Follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta and all those things. Mm -hmm. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. I really I hope there's more to that mirror story. I want to see how that follows up. Maybe it could be like um like every week's Aussie ads. It could be just like a development of the neighbourhood mirror rage war that brought yeah. the sun into it. And what did the other neighbours think of this? Oh, I think they just sit out the front with popcorn and laugh. <laughs> Look what he's writing on his mouth. <laughs> he is good. Yeah, I've always thought so. <laughs> Have you seen his face up close? Oh, yeah, you go, Nathan. I know, I was calling him bad kid for years, but come face, that works too. Oh, I like it. Probably gets fish tacos for dinner. Oh, you do. No, I don't. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I get you know it's a real food now, though, so that's something. It is a real food. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, Tara. Yeah. I was dropping off Dexter at school this morning. Mm -hmm. And you know, he takes his purple ball to school every day. Every day. He's got this big sort of basketball-sized purple ball. 
Well, getting out of the car, he dropped it. It went onto the road. It got hit by a car. I grabbed it. I gave it back to him, and it just deflated. Like a in, in his, his hands, hands. and his little face deflated too. He was just about to cry. And it was, and it was so cute. I was going to laugh, but I couldn't. No, because it's not funny. No, and it was the start of a school day. You don't want him being like sad and angry. No, so I think he's having a shitty day. Oh, are you going to get him a new one? Well, I already have. On the way back, I bought him a new bowl. Excellent. So I think he'd be pleased about that. <laughs> Poor little guy. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.